Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to episode two of the Unarchived History Podcast. I'm Misha. And I'm Dan. So Dan, how have you been this last week? What have you been up to? I've been really well, thanks Misha. I was actually in sunny Southampton for the week, taking in some of the uh, sights of the lovely British coastline. Nice. And what was that like? Well, it was good. I discovered something new while I was down there. It turns out that Southampton was one of the most important routes of transit for the Normans during the Norman conquest of Britain in the 11th century. I know it's a bit far back from what we're talking about today, but it was it was pretty interesting nonetheless. What about you, Misha? What did you get up to this week? Well, I stayed in London. I haven't been on any trips, but I recently discovered Periscope, and it's a really cool new app that allows you to stream videos live. It's like having your own mini TV station. I've had one or two goes myself, but I haven't quite got the hang of it yet. But I've been watching Darius Aria, and he takes you around archaeological sites in Rome live. And I've become a bit obsessed and I would definitely recommend it. I'm going to try and do a few live tours of local places around London myself. So keep an eye out. Oh, that sounds brilliant. I'm a big fan of Periscope myself. So what are we taking a look at today? Dan, do you want to introduce us to today's location? So today we are in North London exploring Camden Town, which is only a short walk from London Zoo. It's home to some of the most influential figures in British culture, including novelist Charles Dickens, scientist John Desmond Bernal, and pianist Charles Dibden. Camden is also known for its heavy pop culture since the 1980s, and Camden was, and still is, the place to be, as it's an iconic punk and rock nightlife still lives on. Should we go? The family of Charles Dickens moved to London in 1822, for his father to seek better work opportunities. But soon after the move, Charles's dad would end up in prison for unpaid debts to a baker. During this time, the family lived on Bayham Street. The original house no longer exists as it was demolished in 1910, but you can see a blue plaque of remembrance in its place today. The house is noted as being the same house described in his later novels, David Copperfield and A Christmas Carol, 
At the age of 12, Charles was sent to work in a factory to help bring in another income for his family. This work interrupted his education and the effects of poverty and feelings of abandonment had a profound effect on a young Charles. Charles's father had been imprisoned at Marshalsea in Southwark, a notorious place housing those accused of crimes at sea. But it became synonymous with holding London's poorest at a time when almost half of England's prison population were incarcerated because of debt. Prisoners had to pay prison fees and pay for their own food. They were allowed to move their whole family in and Charles's mother, along with his four siblings, did this very thing. Charles, being the eldest, did not join the rest of his family and stayed at lodgings in Camden Town. This separation became overwhelming and so he was allowed to move to a residence in Southwark to be closer to the prison. Charles was able to finish the final years in his education and less than a decade later, Charles would see his first piece of writing published. Continuing to spend much of his adult life in the surrounding area, Charles based many scenes in his books after those which he had seen in real life. Fagin's Den in Oliver Twist, for example, was based on Saffron Hill. Between 1822 and 1825, when his father was finally released from the Marshalsea prison, um, he had no education at all. He spent most of his time wandering the streets. And then, of course, there was the job at Warren's. Um, and he spent no time at all in those three years getting anything, any kind of education. Initially, Warrens had uh, premises in a tumble-down warehouse on the bank of the Thames at Hungerford Stairs. Rat-infested, filthy place. And then later they moved to rather posher premises in Chandos Place, Covent Garden, and they put the young boy in the window because he was so skilled at doing this finishing off tying the wrapping, tying the string they wanted to show off there was a, think of that in your early adolescent years the deep embarrassment and humiliation that that went with it Charles Dickens a true legend you're a fan I'm sure Dan a huge fan Misha the first play I ever performed in was Oliver Twist as a young artful dodger and needless to say my Cockney accent was absolutely terrible But it's difficult to tell anyone something that they don't know about Charles Dickens. He's a real historical treasure. His portrayal of Britain's harsh industrial revolution is truly remarkable from a literary standpoint and indispensable for historians wishing to delve into Britain's past, gaining a glimpse into the world in which Dickens lived. And do you have any favourite lines of his work? (laughs) Well, I can't rightly sing Lionel Bart's Food, Glorious Food during the podcast, as much as I'd like to, but I will leave you with an opening of A Tale of Two Cities, a perfect encapsulation of the Industrial Revolution. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom. It was an age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light, and it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Fantastic, Dan. That was lovely to hear. Let's move on. Lying at the heart of the borough is Camden Town Station, named after Charles Pratt, who was the first Earl of Camden. 
The arrival of the London and Birmingham Railway, which opened in 1837, saw Camden Town rapidly expand and become a major centre of commerce. This was the first main line into London, and naturally, stops en route to the centre became areas of interchange for goods. Camden's locality to the city of Westminster and this convenience in transportation meant that industries flocked to the area, setting up workshops, and with this, the area expanded. The continuous development of the railways in the area of Camden means that the borough has been left with the richest railway heritage in all of London. The Camden Goods Depot was constructed alongside the canal as a terminus for incoming goods from trains. It opened in 1839 and was built on 30 acres of land owned by Lord Southampton. Having the depot in this location contributed to the fact that Camden was a useful place for industry. Even with the country in the midst of the Industrial Revolution, the humble horse still played an integral part in the work during the Victorian times and were in use around the railway and canal, transporting goods to and from the depot. Playing such an important role in industry, Victorians ensured their horses were well looked after, building the Camden stables to accommodate and feed the animals, maintaining their health and safety. The first Camden Road station opened in 1850 and could be found on the east side of St Pancras Way. It remained until 1870 when it was closed, along with three other stations not too far away, as they simply couldn't compete with new tubes, trams and buses in the area. A new Camden Road station was built on the corner of Royal College Street and Camden Road, where it remains today. Although it began life called Camden Town Station, this was changed in 1950 to avoid confusion with the underground station. Railway development has left an exceptional railway heritage with four Grade 2 listed structures, the Roundhouse, Primrose Hill Tunnel, the stationary winding engine vaults and the Horse Hospital, as well as many Grade 2 features. A remarkable collection of vaults and other underground features represents every stage of good station development from 1837 to the 1930s. Since the end of steam in 1962, the area has undergone a remarkable regeneration, tentative at first, but gathering pace over the last 30 years, to become one of London's premier tourist destinations. This presents new challenges for those that wish to preserve a sense of the past. The first Earl of Camden, Charles Pratt, seems like a really important figure in the history of Camden, Dan. So tell us, what is his story? Well, Charles Pratt was a leading politician of the age, an English lawyer and judge. He was instrumental in the implementations of limitations to state power in Britain. He was the champion of civil liberties and private property, and his work in the courts of England formed the basis for the motivation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. So this prevented the unlawful seizure and searches of property. And he has a connection to royalty as well, doesn't he? Yes, Charles Pratt actually led the way for the establishment of a king regent in 1788. This was after King George III fell ill and was mentally impaired as a result. But as you've described, Misha, his greatest physical legacy is that of Camden, which became an industrial hub through the creation of the railways, waterways and warehouses. Today, the town bears his name, as does a Camden in Maine, South Carolina, New Jersey and Missouri in the US. So really, if it wasn't for Charles Pratt, we wouldn't have the Camden we all know and love today. Well, I think it would look rather different. He really is a key part in the Burroughs story. 
The Camden Town murder of 1907 was ranked by the Discovery Channel as the third most famous unsolved murder behind Jack the Ripper and the Peace and Hall murder. On the morning of September the 12th, the body of Phyllis was discovered by her husband. Her throat had been slit from ear to ear. Originally named Emily Elizabeth Dimmock, Phyllis had made her way to London with her older sister, where she found herself working as a servant in Finchley. Phyllis drifted around King's Cross, where it seems that she may have been introduced to the darker side of life, as the King's Cross area was a common meeting place for prostitutes and their clients. In 1905, Phyllis is recorded as living in a house off Euston Road. The owner, John William Crabtree, was charged with running a brothel, alluding again to the fact that Phyllis had become caught up in the sinister underworld. The following year, Phyllis had married and was living with her husband, Bert Shaw. By 1907, they had moved into the house on St Paul's Road, where Phyllis would ultimately meet her fate. It seems that despite Phyllis marrying, she didn't entirely leave her past behind, and whilst her husband was away, Phyllis would entertain clients. On that fateful night of September 11th, Phyllis had been drinking in Rising Sun Pub. She was with Robert Wood, making this the last time she was seen alive. On the discovery of her body, police were able to piece together the secret life of Phyllis. Phyllis's body had been left in such a way that it seemed as if she was still sleeping. Now charged with murder, Mr Wood recruited two of the best solicitors of the time. Edward Marshall Hall, leading the defence, was somewhat of a pop star of his day, and people crammed into the courtroom to get a glance at proceedings. Edward Hall did not leave them disappointed. Putting on a show, he cross-examined witnesses and persuaded the jury enough to find Mr Wood not guilty. Mr Wood was the first person to give evidence on his own behalf, something which was not allowed before the Criminal Justice Bill of 1905. Unfortunately for Phyllis, no other suspects were ever presented in court, and so this sad tale has been confined in history as another unsolved case. Crowds gathered at the coroner's and magistrates' courts, and thousands lined the route of Emily Dimmock's funeral cortege to St Pancras Cemetery. The drama of the trial was heightened by the fact that the defendant, for the first time in a murder trial, gave evidence on his own behalf, and by the brilliant performance of Sir Edward Marshall Hall in his defence. The Penny Illustrated paper called it the most remarkable criminal trial held within the past 50 years. When the verdict was due on 18 December, between seven and 10,000 people thronged the Old Bailey exits and stretched into Ludgate Circus. Traffic was at a standstill. And when the news of Robert Wood's acquittal was finally flashed down the wires, theatrical performances were interrupted to announce it. This level of public attention was sustained by several factors. First, there was the morbid fascination of sex and death. But more specifically, there was the inevitable incitement and framing of this fascination, provided by both 19th century fictional genres like the detective story 
and by the prominence of sex and crime in the popular press. We do love a good murder mystery, don't we, Dan? Ah, that we do, Misha. So, Wood was acquitted. Who do you think did it, then? Well, it's a strange case, and the victim never gave up her debaucherous lifestyle when she married her husband, Bert Shaw. And Bert had the perfect motivation. Jealousy. However, it seems that he had the alibi of working during the time of the murder. He was actually in Sheffield. Bert's mother is reportedly to have visited the victim to express how she disapproved of her relationship and Emily's lifestyle in general. And also, a petty crook known as Scotty had been implicated in threatening her prior to her death. So all in all, three other men were implicated in close sexual encounters with Emily. So what led them to Wood? Well, the evidence all hinged on a postcard written in his handwriting, which was identified by Wood's lover. However, Wood was acquitted on the grounds of poor evidence. And what do you make about the Ripper rumours? Well, others have speculated, and the crime certainly fits. A lonely prostitute in London, her throat was slit, but the body wasn't mutilated. This falls outside the Ripper's usual calling card, but perhaps he was interrupted. It was the height of the swinging 60s, and at 13 Lime Street, a new family were moving in. This wasn't your typical family, and do you know why? because they were freedom fighters. Joe Slovo and Ruth First had moved their young family away from their home in South Africa through fear of losing their lives. You see, they were fighting a battle for freedom against the apartheid government in South Africa. Born the children of Jewish immigrants, Ruth and Joe had a similar upbringing. Ruth's parents were especially clear in their political aspirations setting up the Communist Party of South Africa shortly after their arrival. And so, politics had always been in the air for this couple. The young pair were soon to cross paths as they both attended the Wits University. During this time, Joe was completing his law degree and found himself in the same class as a young Nelson Mandela. From here, it's believed, their friendship grew. During Mandela's later imprisonment, Joe was his legal counsel, regularly meeting with him in prison. Ruth and Joe went on to marry in 1949 and were soon in the midst of fighting against the apartheid. By 1961, Joe became one of two leaders of MK, the military wing of Mandela's African National Congress. This role soon led to Joe seeking exile in a number of countries throughout Africa in 1963, as well as Britain. And by 1966, the threat from the South African police had become so great that this move had become permanent. Joe, along with Ruth, moved their young family to the house in Camden we are discussing today. Living here for 12 years, both continued their fight against apartheid. Ruth through her writing and Joe through maintaining contact with the ANC. Eventually moving back to Africa... The relentless pursuit by authorities was not over, with an order being made by a major in the police to assassinate Ruth. Working in a university in Mozambique in 1982, Ruth opened a letter addressed to her, but sadly, this was a disguised bomb and led to her death. Joe continued the fight for freedom, returning home to South Africa in 1990 once a 30-year ban on the ANC had been lifted by the then-president. Gaining a political seat under the ANC in South Africa's first multiracial elections in 1994, 
Joe continued to serve his country and people as Minister of Housing up until his untimely death by cancer in 1995. Our garish suitcases piled precariously beside us, staring out at the unrelenting grey and at a line of taxis that without an address to give them, we couldn't take. Joe had made his final transformation, reaching the end of a career which had begun in what they called terrorism and ended with Nelson Mandela making him the new South Africa's Minister of Housing. He managed the change brilliantly, using the combination of careful planning and flamboyant inspiration with which he'd once blown up air oil refineries to woo industry and bankers into the slow business of housing the poor. White South Africa lapped it up. They took him to their hearts, this genial communist. Once he had been their arch enemy. Now he was quite simply theirs. There's quite the left-wing theme in today's episode, isn't there, Dan? So it seems, Misha. It appears like Camden was a hotbed for left-wing communist revolutionaries fighting for a variety of causes. Joe Slovo was an atheist, but he appreciated the positive aspects of the Jewish culture to which he was born. And Joe was inspired by the Red Army's fight against the Nazis on the Eastern Front and volunteered to fight in World War II. Thereafter, he joined a collection of multiracial ex-servicemen upon his return, known as the Springbok Legion. It seems like we can trace Joe Slovo's anti-apartheid and pro-communist ideology quite far back then. But, I mean, the South African government's primary abuses were against the native black population. Just why were two young people of European descent so interested in ending the reign of apartheid? Well, that question may be explained by the fact that the government were equally discriminatory against communists. As members of the party, they were banned from attending public meetings and could not be quoted by the press. This prejudice and lack of freedom probably helped to fuel much of the distaste for the apartheid regime. That makes sense then. Imagine not being able to attend meetings in public. It really does prove the paranoia surrounding communism at the time. Absolutely, Misha. They're not everyone's favourite people, are they? So what are we taking a look at now? Long before the carefully laid out flower beds or the gravestones had arrived, there was once a farm that had stood on the land of St Martin's Gardens. But just after the turn of the century, in 1802, an Act of Parliament was passed, which would see the site transformed into a place to bury the dead. The four acres of land would be used as a burial site for the ever-growing population of St Martin's in the Fields. Part of the Act stated that alongside this new cemetery, a chapel and buildings housing the clergy must also be built. Once this had been completed, in 1805, the Bishop of London blessed and made the site sacred, and so the site of St Martin's began its next life as Camden Cemetery. Fifty years later, and with London ever expanding, 1854 saw another Act of Parliament passed, which permitted the construction of buildings on land not being used for burials. And with this Act, the chapel and clergy house were demolished to make room. But the trustees of the cemetery also wanted to build on a valuable land which contained graves. They had actually begun exhuming bodies, but there was so much debate about this. After a lengthy battle and a visit from the then Secretary of State, it was eventually decided that this shouldn't be allowed. 
Although it is rumoured today that those bodies which had been dug up have been buried under a large mound in the centre of the gardens. The cemetery had reached full capacity in 1884 and would no longer be in use. By 1887, the parish of St Pancras took over the site from St Martin's, where they were allowed to lay out the ground as a garden. Today, a number of chest stones and gravestones can still be seen, especially if you look along the north wall. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. On the 24th of July, 1889, the gardens were officially opened by Countess Rosebery, commemorated by a plaque on the wall in the northeast corner. Born Hannah Rothschild, she was one of England's greatest heiresses, inheriting two million pounds in 1874 upon the death of her father. She married Philip Archibald Primrose, 5th Earl of Rosebery, on the 20th of March 1878. She was given away by Disraeli. The Earl was said to have had three ambitions, to marry the richest woman in London, win the Derby and become Prime Minister. He achieved all three. In 2005 and 2006, the London Borough of Camden commissioned and completed a series of improvements and changes in planting in St Martin's Gardens to enhance the community use of them. There was a ceremony on the 10th of June 2006 to rededicate the gardens, carried out by the current Countess of Rosebery. The Earl of Rosebery and Hannah Rothschild. That seems like an interesting addition to the story of St Martin's. But just who were they, Dan? Archibald Primrose is somewhat of a well-known figure in British history, having succeeded Gladstone as Prime Minister. However, I must confess I didn't know a great deal about his wife, Hannah Rothschild, the woman who opened up St Martin's Gardens in 1889. From my research, I can only describe their relationship as a 19th century power couple, a posh Kimye. <laughs> 
The then 27-year-old Hannah Rothschild was the sole heiress of the Jewish banker Mia Amschel de Rothschild, making her the wealthiest heiress in London. Her father had died four years previously and bequeathed to her the bulk of his estate. Now, Primrose is quoted to have said that he found Hannah very simple, very unspoiled, very warm-hearted, and I never knew such a beautiful character. However, it has also been disputed in the annals of history that Primrose was bisexual and suffered the same accusation Oscar Wilde did from John Douglas, the ninth Marquis of Queensbury, for supposed homosexual relationships with his son. Mmm, quite a history. What happened to his wife, Hannah? Well, she died in 1890 due to typhoid, which apparently left him distraught, although at least he had the beautiful gardens of St. Martin's to remember her by. Quite the controversial figure could once be found living at 44 Albert Street in Camden. His name was John Desmond Bernal, famous for his scientific work in crystallography, as well as his interest in politics, especially communism. He has been given the nickname the Red Scientist. Now, before I proceed, let me explain exactly what crystallography is. It's the study of the atomic and molecular structure in materials with scientists attempting to understand exactly how the atoms have been arranged. In order to do this, an X-ray crystallography is needed. John was a pioneer of this scientific tool, and by 1924, he had determined the structure of graphite. John's work is highly regarded in the scientific community, so much so that it is often questioned why didn't he win a Nobel Prize? But it's thought that such was John's interest in science as a whole that he spread himself too thinly, never quite dedicating enough time to one project. Making an impression on his Cambridge classmates, John had been given the nickname Sage, associated with his bright mind. A move to London saw a young Bernal become enamoured by the world of politics, particularly with the teachings of Karl Marx. John became politically active, marching in the general strikes of 1926 and joining the Labour Party and Communist Party by 1930. Whilst it might seem strange to be a member of two political parties today, it wasn't all that uncommon for the time, and even more so amongst the scientific community. However, John wasn't simply just a scientist interested in politics. He firmly believed the two should go hand in hand as science provides a huge capacity for social change, he argued. Science to him was the most important thing humans had achieved and could be a tool for improving people's lives. While Professor of Physics here at Burbeck, he put his formidable knowledge and expertise at the service of the war effort. It was Burnell who made the case for the artificial harbour for D-Day. It was Burnell too who provided advice on the composition of the landing beaches and by D-Day plus one, he was in Normandy. Many people of my generation know Burnell first and foremost as the author of the weighty four-volume Science in History, originally published in 1954. It placed science and technology as one of the driving forces of history. Burnell was also an active communist and stayed so after the war. His book, The Social Function of Science, argued for more spending on R&D. It is now so widely accepted that science and research can contribute to economic growth that we forget how bold an argument it was back then. A communist scientist in high places. 
What do you make of this tale, Dan? Well, like you've said, Misha, it was not uncommon for leading intellectuals from both a scientific or artistic background to lean this far to the left. A powerful flirtation with communism had infiltrated the intellectual classes of Britain, just as it had America, especially after World War I, when the ideological limitations of communism had yet to be truly established. However, John Bernal stands out in his ongoing dedication to communism, which has been described by historians as a blind, unflinching, lifelong dedication. And we all know about the controversy surrounding communism. I take it this must have caused him some trouble along the way. Well, it certainly did. John Bernal was watched really closely by the British and American governments, particularly after his writings in the late 1940s, arguing that America was engaged in a war of global domination against the Soviet Union. He was even refused a visa to a World Peace Conference in America in 1949 for his open criticism of Western society. A Briton, a scientist, an atheist and a communist, he died in 1971 and is buried in Battersea Cemetery. JBD sounds like a man after my own heart. Let's continue. The Electric Ballroom in Camden can be seen as part of a group of venues that helped to usher in the age of rock and roll into the area. Along with Coco and the Roundhouse, these sites have hosted many a legendary rock band. Starting its life as a Buffalo Club, a notoriously rough venue for Irish folk music, it was forced to close in the 1930s. Bill Fuller, a young Irish immigrant, persuaded local police for the chance to reopen the venue, reassuring them he would close its doors if any trouble kicked off. Bill transformed the place into a thriving business as one of the most popular venues for Irish music in the country. But by chance of a misfortune, Bill was able to expand his musical venture. In 1941, Camden Town Underground Station was bombed, destroying part of the Buffalo and a small side street next to it. Bill purchased the land and built his new, larger venue, able to hold 2,000 people. It continued to thrive, not only as a social centre for Irish immigrants, but also as a meeting place for great music in general. Having rapidly increased his property portfolio, during the 1960s, Bill renamed a number of his venues the Carousel, including the Buffalo in Camden. Perhaps seeing a slight decline in numbers, Bill sold a number of his clubs and turned others into rock venues. This was when the Electric Ballroom was born. The opening night on the 2nd of July 1978 was huge. This glory was short-lived, however, as they were forced to shut nine months later due to noise complaints. With new soundproofing, they reopened and continue to this day. From Iggy Pop to The Clash, U2 and Oasis, this venue has seen many of the greatest names in rock. I spent a lot of time here one weekend for Desert Fest and I have to say it's a great venue. They have three bars so you don't have to wait too long for drinks and no matter how far you are away from the stage, you're almost guaranteed a good view. I think the angle of the floor is subtle and the stage is just high enough to make a difference. They do have an upstairs mezzanine area also so if you don't want to be in the thick of it all or you want to chill in a booth, the option's there. Of course the sound depends on a variety of factors but when these lined up, the riffs were crisp and the vocals audible enough to sing along with. The staff that work there are helpful and lovely too. Good place for a big rock gig. From the Buffalo Club to Electric Ballroom, this venue played host to some of the greatest musical talents of our time. 
Anyone you particularly like who's played there, Dan? I must admit, Misha, I'm a bit of a 90s Britpop man myself. Ocean colour scene, Oasis. However, if I'd only have been there to see Joy Division play one of the earliest versions of Love Will Tear Us Apart, I would really have felt like part of music history. That, or The Killing Moon by Echo and the Bunnymen, a personal favourite of mine. Nice, a great list there. But the existence of the club has come into threat in recent years, is that right? Sadly so. So in 2003, London Underground proposed a new development for Camden Town Tube Station, which would have resulted in a compulsory purchase order, turning it into a faceless block of offices. And Bill Fuller, the owner, once remarked, I'll keep Camden Town until I move out of this world. It was the first place of my own that I had, so I wouldn't dream of parting with it. Camden will never be sold. Sadly, Bill died in 2008, so it's up to us now to keep such a vital and historical site alive. A real icon in the music scene, but his legacy definitely lives on in the electric. So once the canal had been opened, the land surrounding it was mainly industrial, occupied by warehouses used to house the products that had been traded by water. But by the 1970s, the canal had ceased to be a major trading waterway and so the future use of the site was in question. A motorway had been planned to cut through the site, much to the dislike of locals. But going against these plans, on the 30th of March 1974, a small market opened. Just 16 traders had stalls at these early markets, with there being a focus on selling antiques, jewellery and art. June Folds, a former Olympic runner in the 1950s, was the first person to open a food store within the market. The market flourished, attracting large numbers. This is thought to largely be due to the fact that, at the time, shops weren't allowed to trade on a Sunday, and so here, shoppers could get their fix. Thanks to the success of the market, by 1976, plans for the motorway were scrapped, and Camden Market continued to grow. Still with a focus on crafts, the market occupied some of the outdoor area by the canal, as well as various existing buildings. 1991 saw the construction of a three-storey indoor market hall designed by John Dickinson. This new market was in a style of other traditional buildings in the area, being built of brick and cast iron. The market has gone from strength to strength, now attracting some 100,000 visitors each weekend. Whilst the market boasts many achievements, it hasn't always been smooth sailing, with two fires tearing through the site in recent years. The first in 2008 and another in 2014. But things look set to become brighter with the arrival of a new distillery in the area and a major redevelopment of the market by the current owner. Yes, I own my own mobile catering business called Barbacoa, where we sell smoked meats at markets and festivals. We're different because we blend the taste of Caribbean with Texas-style barbecue. I must have visited most of them when I was younger. Uh, Dalston Market, East Street Market, Petticoat Lane. I love going to the markets, the hustle and bustle, the market life. These days, I own my own business and having to go to Smithfield Market, which is the biggest market for fresh meat in London, is brilliant. Uh, When I first visited, I was a kid. Um, I would have been with my mum. My first impressions were mixed. It was a crazy culture. So much different people. Um, The bright colours, how many people were dressed differently, the way they were dressed eccentrically. 
Camden has long been an attraction for the unique individual. I remember my first visit as a teenager. I was transfixed by the shop fronts and there were so many different types of people. Yeah, Camden certainly has become an attractive place for those into alternative fashion and music, but it wasn't always this wild. You'll remember June Falls mentioned by Misha earlier. Now, originally June's ambitions had started out in the track and field. Her speciality was the 100 metres and she competed in the 1952 Olympic Games held in Helsinki, Finland. She earned a bronze medal and then four years later at the 1956 Sydney Olympics went on one better, winning silver in the relay. She married the British Olympic fencer, Raymond Paul, and then it seems June found her way to Camden, selling food almost two decades later. What a remarkable lady. Running against the best athletes in the world one moment and selling produce to punters the next. She really has lived a colourful life. Well, she's certainly inspiring. Shall we take a look at the next piece of history, Misha? Affectionately known as Camden Lock, the Hampstead Road Lock, with its tranquil scenery, has become a popular attraction for tourists and locals alike. Whilst they make for a great photo and a lunchtime spot, the actual point of a lock is to raise and lower boats travelling at different water levels on the canal. Before the arrival of the lock or the canal, the area around Camden Town was still largely rural, being used as land to grow crops and raise animals, until it was proposed by Thomas Homer in 1802 that a canal be built, linking the Grand Union Canal from Paddington to the River Thames at Limehouse. This would make it a lot easier to transport goods from the heart of the industrial Midlands to the docks in London. With an act being passed in Parliament ten years later, the Regent's Canal was eventually opened in 1820. The lock at Camden was built between 1918 and 1920 by James Morgan and John Nash. When the canal was first being built, engineers experimented with a hydropneumatic lock with the aim of saving water, but this move turned out disastrous and all the locks were replaced with conventional double locks. Today's lock is Grade 2 listed and is the only twin lock still to remain along the length of the canal, with all the others being replaced by single locks. It's fun cycling around London. It makes you feel free and like an explorer. There's nothing like a bike ride in the morning to get your brain firing and put you in a good mood for the day. Hurtling along Regent's Canal on a Sunday morning, I spot a giant carp swimming slowly in the metre deep litter-strewn water. I've always wondered why people fish here. I once saw a skinny, shirtless metal dude in denim shorts emerging from the water like a scruffy newt. Another time, a cockney geezer in his late 20s was smoking and gaping at a wild and unusual bird. Young people emerged dishevelled and bleary-eyed from their canal boat cabins, mugs of tea and marmite on toast in hand. A romantic experience, not without its hardships. This is my London experience. So, we know Camden Lock has a long history. Can you tell us a bit more about its origins, Dan? Certainly, Misha. So, Camden's Lock's origins date back to the end of the 18th century, when the first Earl of Camden began to develop land on both sides of the southern part of what is now Camden High Street. Ah, wasn't that Charles Pratt? I noticed there was a Pratt Street named after the Earl. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It runs all the way from Camden High Street and down to St Pancras Way. 
So before the decision to build Camden up, Camden was a pretty isolated area. It had just a few inns and an area of open countryside outside of London. It's strange to think of that today, when Camden is one of the busiest places in all of London. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And from there, the old warehouses, no longer needed for the storage of waterway goods, were turned into the massive Camden markets that we know today. Another industry which established itself here throughout the 1800s was piano manufacturing. The pianoforte was invented in the early 18th century in Italy. Today, it's more commonly known as just piano. It took a number of years for the piano to make its way to the UK, with the first demonstration of this new instrument taking place in 1767. Charles Dibden, a famous singer, composer and novelist, introduced the crowds of London to the piano. The West End, surrounded by theatre shows, was a natural home for the first piano manufacturers in the country. Once famous piano firms like Collard & Collard began the move to Camden to take advantage of the transport links, many followed, establishing Camden as a place for piano manufacturing in the country. Regent's Canal allowed for the heavy pieces which would make up a finished piano to be transported in at a cheap price. Then once complete, they could then be shipped off around the country by heading up north along the canal or further east to the docks where they could be shipped across the world. Collard and Collard established their business in a circular building found on Oval Road following a fire which had happened there the previous year. The circular shape was decided on as it created maximum floor space whilst bringing in maximum light for the minimum amount of bricks. In the centre of the building was a hole, which allowed for pianos to be moved up and down floors to the next stage in the manufacturing process. There are 22 windows in total. By the turn of the 1900s, the manufacturing industry for pianos in London began to dwindle. The trade became competitive and workmanship in the area became of less good quality. By this time, Germany was coming to dominate piano manufacturing and by 1912, they were producing 65 times as much as the UK. In the 1990s, just a handful of piano shops survived in Camden, but none of these were manufacturers. Sadly, all the piano factories and component manufacturers are now long gone, and for many years, we were the only remnant of a once-thriving industry. Over the years, there were many difficult periods. At the time of the Great Depression, survival was paramount, and many of the factories ceased trading. My father left school in 1931 and was told to go and do something else, as there was no future in the piano industry. But they managed to continue trading, and in 1971, I joined the family business. Over the next 43 years, we continued to trade from Bayham Street. This period saw massive changes in the piano industry, as one by one the UK manufacturers ceased trading. Piano restoration also diminished, particularly following the advent of incredibly cheap new Chinese instruments. Undoubtedly, digital pianos have also affected the traditional acoustic piano market, but most piano teachers still seem to encourage their pupils to go down the acoustic route once a certain level has been attained. By 2014, trading conditions had become impossible, and the sad decision was taken to close the Bayham Street Warehouse, which had been home for over 100 years. I now operate Heckscher and Company from home. So this Charles Dibden, the first person to demonstrate the piano in England, 
What do we know about him? Well, Charles Dibden was a man of many talents. He wasn't just a musician, but he had talents as a dramatist, novelist, and even an actor. But is most famous for his sea songs. He was performing the Beggar's Opera at Covent Garden on the 16th of May 1767. And in between these performances, it was his moment to show off this brand new instrument. Hmm, quite an occasion then. I just couldn't imagine seeing a piano for the first time. Dibden was accompanied by a Miss Bricklet on stage playing the new piano forte. So to add to all of his other skills as a singer, composer and novelist, he could also add pianist to the list. And it's quite a coincidence then that Charles Dibden lived in Arlington Street in the heart of Camden. It is an odd coincidence that the piano industry should later have grown up in his backyard. And today Charles Dibden is buried in the churchyard between Beam Street and Camden Street. Well, that's it for episode two. A huge thank you to everyone who has helped to make this week's episode possible. A special thanks goes to our researchers, Hasib and Ewan. Also, thanks to the Shout Out Network for hosting our show. And a thanks goes to our sound engineer and producer. Don't forget, we keep these discussions going over our social media accounts. So please follow us on Twitter and Facebook at An Archive and catch us on Instagram at An Archive UK. Also, if you've liked what you've heard, please leave us comments and reviews on the Apple Store or SoundCloud as we'd love to hear your response. We're also always on the lookout to hear your local stories. So if you'd like to help us preserve the past for the future, drop us an email on info at anarchive.co. Or feel free to send us an audio of your story direct and you might get a feature in the show. This summer you can see all the sites we're discussing on the show up close and personal on our guided history tours around London. We're covering five really interesting locations and you can find out more by visiting our website www.unarchived.co. Thanks for listening and catch us again next week where we'll be discussing the history of Greenwich. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.